Listen to the word of God. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. After throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And he, as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in earth and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes that through your word proclaimed, we may see you and encounter you, the living Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite books by an American author is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. I think it's one of the great novels of the latter part of the 20th century. It won a Pulitzer Prize. If you haven't read the book, it's a big book. But it's worth reading. Maybe you saw, I think there were many series on TV uh, years ago. And uh, it's a wonderful book. It takes place, uh, there's actually four books in the series. Lonesome Dove is kind of the third, in, in the, it, it was written first, but it's third. It's kind of like Star Wars. The order is all messed up, right? But it's basically about a group of people, men who had been Texas Rangers, a core group of them for years together, and they go on a cattle drive. That's kind of the, the uh, plot, but there's all kinds of other things that happen. And at one point, uh, a ranger who had been with them, Jake, was helping them, but he, he was bored. He left. Okay. Well, Jake got mixed up accidentally with a bunch of robbers and murderers, all right? And the other rangers, um, Cal and Augustus, Pete, indeed say they captured him after they had killed, at least the guys he was with had killed a farmer and then other things and had stolen horses. So they are going to hang not only the three brothers who were horse thieves and murderers, but their friend who was with them. And he's trying to talk his way out of this. He says, I ain't no killer. And Augustus uh, says to him, ride with an outlaw, you die with him. I admit it's a harsh cold, but you rode on the other side long enough to know how it works. I'm sorry you crossed the line, though. And to which... Jake goes, I've never seen no line. I was just trying to get to Kansas without getting scalped. As he's waiting, perhaps to be hung, he's debating in his mind. He's trying to remember, 
You know, I rode with these guys so long, somebody must owe me a debt. I must have done something for somebody that I can maybe get some compassion from them. But as he's trying to remember, he can't remember if he ever helped any of them or did anything good for them. And then he said this in his head. He says, life slipped out of line. It was unfair. It was too bad. But he couldn't find energy to fight it any longer. You have to read the book to find out what happens to him. I'm not going to give you that away. Okay. Now, the character in Lonesome Dove, Jake, the person who has been captured by his friends, his former friends, he's not a bad man in the story, nor was he a good man. A combination of bad choices and bad luck led him to fatally belong with the wrong crowd. Jesus was a good man, the best man ever to live. A combination of his purposeful choices and the will of his Heavenly Father brought him to the crowd of the first Palm Sunday and set in motion his death. For me, Palm Sunday is always the most difficult sermon to preach during the Holy Week. I've always struggled with it. Now, I, I like the music. The music is, is great. Uh, the hymns are wonderful. The choir did a wonderful anthem. There are a lot of great other anthems about Palm Sunday. At Feasterville, I'm having my preschool choir. They're going to wave palms around and march around the church and sing. That's always fun, right? When you, you, know, you get put kids, put sticks in kids' hands. What could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> They're enthusiastic. They're, they're going to be marching around singing right on King Jesus, and it's, 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 it's great. It's beautiful, right? But there's something about the event, and I think Luke's gospel in some ways tries to downplay this event because it's problematic on, on many different levels. And for me, this week and the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about this sermon, I just can't get out of my head horse thieves. And shouting stones. Those are the two images of this passage that just stayed with me. So now you have to listen to me talk about them. All right. Now we had this we had this talk in our consistory meeting. Technically, the horses weren't stolen, right? They were borrowed. It, its implication is it's going to bring the horses are going to be brought back. Also, can you imagine being the disciples who were charged with stealing the horse? Are borrowing the horse. Okay. <laughs> Remember, you know, people, I think they wanted to help Jesus. And Jesus said, all right, I need some volunteers. Okay. I need you two guys to go take a horse. You need to go to town and borrow a horse. Now, if any of you, you know, have ever watched Westerns, and I, and I grew up watching Westerns. My dad loved them. All right. What happens to the people who go to town? Nothing ever good happens if you're the one who has to go to town, Right. If you're lucky, you just get beat up and thrown in jail. But usually the poor guy went to town. Always bad things happen. So uh, Jesus says, okay, I want you guys to go to town, get a horse, untie it. If anyone bothers you, tell them I need it. Now, what's remarkable about it is that worked, right? <laughs> in the story, they go. And you can just see it. Too, you know, the disciples are kind of tentatively untying this horse, the owners come out and say, hey, what are you doing? I, I have a feeling that's not exactly what they said. Okay? We don't have the exact wording, 
But in Aramaic, I'm sure there were some extra adjectives in there. Okay. And they say, well, the Lord needs it. And the owner goes, okay. Now, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, I think Mark is interested in this as well. This seems to be a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah um, is a later prophet. And at the end of Zechariah, there's this vision of the restoration of Jerusalem where all the people, all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem. And uh, the, the quote is from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Matthew actually has two horses, right? Which is always interesting. Fortunately, we're not doing the Matthew passage because it has Jesus riding two horses into Jerusalem, a horse and a donkey. Which, as a kid, I always thought he's like one of the circus riders, you know, standing up. But Matthew, Matthew is reading from the Greek, which instead of a redundancy has and, okay? So the original Hebrew is it's a redundancy, a colt, a foal. It's just one horse, okay? So anyway... So it could be a fulfillment of this Messianic prophecy. Also, you know, it's, there's all kinds of talk about symbolism. Uh, we even had a discussion considering the different things different preachers have said, you know, why he was riding on a young foal. Uh, there certainly is some tradition that it represents a conquering king. Uh, others say, you know, it represents a humble, humble servant. At any rate, um, the symbolism, I think, can be argued a number of different ways. But I think at the heart of what Luke's trying to say is Jesus is in control of his destiny. Jesus purposely knows why he's going to Jerusalem. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not going to be somebody who, oh, I wish it would have gone this way, but on the, you know, the public opinion swayed the other way. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus will go purposely towards his destiny. And his story with the horse cult is just one other example that Jesus knew what he was doing. There was nothing accidental that was about to happen. Now, everyone else around him are just kind of players in the drama just living out from their own choices or good choices or bad choices. Right? They're kind of like our character Jake. He makes some bad choices or doesn't make good choices and he gets swept up in the events around him which is how most of us live our lives, right? We're not really as free as we think we are, right? I mean, I mean uh, how many of you would say it would be better to be a kid than an adult, right? Okay. But Jesus knows what he's doing. He, he, he knows that he has a mission in front of him, and he moves towards it. Now, it's interesting, as he's approaching, his disciples, and in Luke's group, in Luke's gospel, it's his disciples. So there's a group of disciples bigger than the twelve. And they start singing this messianic hymn. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but what are the words that they say? The last phrase. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in earth and glory in the highest heaven. Does that line remind you of anything? Well, how did Luke's gospel begin? What did the angels say? 
So Jesus' disciples are declaring that the king has come, there's peace in heaven, and this is glorifying. In other words, this event is going to make both heaven and earth in harmony. They think this is the shalom of God. This is when everything's going to be made right. That with this coming of Jesus, the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what they think. And so they sing the song. And Luke actually plays along with them a little bit. He wants us to remember the angels when he writes that down. And the Pharisees call him, they say, Master, they recognize his authority. They say, you need to calm your people down. Okay. In other Gospels, it's the leadership of the temple because they are kind of contemptuous. But the Pharisees may be saying, you know, Jesus, this is dangerous. And you may or may not know the history, but there were traditionally massacres that often happened during Jewish holy days under the Roman reign because people would get excited, be like a mob, they'd be like at a political rally. They'd get all excited, this is going to change, and then somebody would do something stupid, right? And the Romans had, you know, they had, they had you know, their finger on the trigger, if you would, proverbially, right? And so Josephus tends to exaggerate, but there were instances where somebody yelled at somebody and then a Roman soldier did an obscene gesture at a Jewish person and then a mob works out and 10,000 people are dead. Okay. So the Pharisees are saying, this is dangerous, man. The Roman soldiers are here because they know this is dangerous. you got some fanatics in the crowd, so Jesus, tell people to calm down. Remember last week? Come on, this is, this is religious. We need to calm down. This is about God. Let's not get too excited about God here. Well, I know it was more practical than that. And these Romans will kill us without any excuse. And the temple people, the temple establishment already is worried about you, Jesus. So play it safe. What does Jesus say? If the people would be quiet... The stones themselves would speak out. I don't know if you've ever hung out with a geologist. Uh, Geologists are really a lot of fun if you have them around rocks. You know, they may not be great at cocktail parties. My first job out of seminary was in the oil patch. So there were a lot of geologists. And I remember one time we broke down. I was in a taking kids and we broke down somewhere. And it was right where the Permian Basin begins. And so they had the, the highway cut, a, cut a, a, a big swath through the rock. And so we're waiting to, for, for the van to get repaired. And so I'm hanging out with one of my geologist friends. And we're looking at the rocks. And again, I, always, I don't really know much about geology, uh, except it's all old. It's a bunch of old stuff there. And we're going through the layers of the rock. And then he points to this one thin layer. And he goes... A lot of things died right there. Yes. Now, a lot of us are making money off of all that dead stuff. Okay. <laughs> but this line here means a lot of living creatures died. Now, archaeologists can talk as well. They can hear stones speaking as well in a different way, right? Whereas the geologist is looking at the record of the earth Archaeologists are looking at the record of humans. And I was um, 
had the opportunity to be, I think I've mentioned this before, to be in Jerusalem on the 9th of Av, which is the day they celebrate, or not celebrate, they mourn the destruction of the temples. And I'm actually standing right at the base of Robinson's Arch. And Robinson's Arch, at the time of Jesus, maybe right after it was being built at the time of Jesus, was this huge bridge at the very top of the, of the wall of the temple. And when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, a big uh, block of this marble, weighing tons, fell hundreds of feet. And they've done the excavation, and I'm standing right in the dent of the marble and stone road where this boulder had fallen down. And the boulders to the side. 70 AD when Jerusalem was massacred and the temple was destroyed. And so it's, it's amazing. I'm standing here and I'm listening to Jews chant lamentation about the destruction of their temple. And I'm looking at the very spot that happened the days of the terror. Immediately following the passage that I read, it picks up in Luke. Listen. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set upon ramparts around you and surround you and hem you on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another. And then he enters the temple, and then this is when he drives out the money changers. The stones did cry out, but for a very different way. You know, the day begins so promising, the week. <laughs> The week will turn out so badly, right? The crowds turn out really to be a mob. The disciples go from being followers to disillusioned deserters. The religious leaders saw him as a legitimate threat, will come up with a plan to stop him. Romans, who saw any offense as a threat to their power, wealth and prestige they will stop him or at least they thought they stopped him on Good Friday and yet the majority of people probably just didn't care they were busy with other things but their non-choice is really a choice but you and I have a choice you and I have a choice If you ever go to Israel, if any of you have ever gone there, there's there's an awful lot of, of tourism, a lot of really kitschy stuff around tourism, okay? And there's a lot of mythology and legendary stuff. But there's one place that you can probably really say Jesus literally, literally walked. And that's on the steps to the eastern gate of Jerusalem. 
This would have been the steps that Jesus, when he came down on Palm Sunday, came down from the Mount of Olives, and then he goes up to Jerusalem. He would have walked in the state, these steps. The steps are called either the Golden Gate or the Gate of Mercy. And it's been walled up. It was walled up during the Middle Ages. Uh, one of the uh, Muslim caliphates walled it up because legend is the Messiah will come back through that gate. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. If, if a Messiah comes back, I don't think a walled door is going to stop him. All right, But nonetheless, you know, uh, probably they had a committee meeting and they said, okay, what are we going to do if the Messiah comes? I know. That's wall up the gate. That'll take care of it. Right? It sounds like something a committee would have come up with. But I actually sat on those steps, the steps. I have, I have a picture somewhere of me sitting on those steps. And I felt, <laughs> I'm not really a sentimental person, but I felt something as I touched, I literally touched the stone on that step. And I thought about all the things, all the stones that surround you in an ancient place. And I thought about Jesus walking on these steps into the mercy gate. And what does it mean for you and I to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to follow the steps of Jesus? I think it's about going through the mercy gate that is his love. We're all guilty of compromise. We're all guilty of just going through the motions of life. We very well easily could have been that crowd that turned on Jesus. We very well may have been his disciples eventually deserted. Maybe we could have even been part of the power structure that was more important to keep our money and our prestige than to do what was right or what was true. Or maybe we're just the people who, you know, it's, life is too busy. Life is too busy. I don't have time to think about this God stuff. But if we follow him, we get to go through the gate of mercy. And that might be the difference between seeing life as a series of chaotic events that sometimes or ultimately will go bad for us. Or there's a purposeful plan. And that plan is about the love of God in Christ. That regardless of what people were thinking, <laughs> can save the world. and can save you and me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.